Uh, we're going to be reading verses 26 through 28 this morning in Genesis 1. I just want to make sure everybody got there. That's why I did that. Uh, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning that you've given us, for this opportunity to freely gather together here to worship you without fear of uh, the government or of anybody coming in and taking us uh, or persecuting us in that way. Just thank you that we have those freedoms here. Lord, open our hearts to uh, the message that you've laid on Pastor's heart this morning and teach us from it, and that we would carry it out of here and be your light in our community, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The story of the Titanic, which I think we're probably all familiar with, the story of the Titanic is fascinating, uh, but it's also very, very tragic. And as you think about the Titanic, one thing is clear that uh, what caused the sinking of the Titanic was not an iceberg. Uh, that what caused the Titanic to sink and 1,503 people to lose their lives was the lack of leadership. There were six different ice warnings received by the Titanic on the day of collision. Despite those ice warnings, the ship was traveling uh, just... Uh, 0.5 knots below its maximum speed, so it was cruising right along. There were only enough lifeboats for roughly one-third of the ship's total capacity. The lifeboat drill scheduled for the same day that it hit the iceberg was canceled for unknown reasons. Uh, two other ships that were close enough, they were within the vicinity to rescue survivors, ignored the cause for help. All of this shows, I think, that the tragedy of the Titanic could have been alleviated, if not entirely avoided, if those in charge had demonstrated better leadership. The difference between the Titanic being a successful luxury cruise and catastrophe was leadership. And I would say that's true in every other area of life. A lack of personal leadership will lead to a shipwrecked life. A lack of relational leadership will lead to relational brokenness. A lack of business leadership will lead to failure within that business. A, a lack of pastoral leadership will lead to a struggling and hurting church. Nothing of significance happens without leadership. Everything rises or falls on leadership. Marriage needs leadership. Children need leadership. Workplaces need leadership. Churches need leadership. Our country needs leadership, and, and not just any kind of leadership. 
but godly, Christ-centered, scripture-saturated leadership. I believe our country and the world in which we live is in chaos because of failed leadership. And I'm not the only one saying that, obviously. A very, very recent survey says 86% of respondents believe there is a global leadership crisis. That is a staggering number. 86%. This is a global survey. Believe there is a global leadership crisis. I don't, I, don't, I don't think the church is exempt from that leadership crisis. As I've said many times, I, I'm a firm believer in the local church. I, I love the church. I believe the church is God's specially designed place uh, to proclaim his message and to proclaim his character, to, to provide examples of truth being lived out. I believe with all my heart that the church is the most exciting place, the most powerful thing in the universe. With that caveat that I've shared with you before, when the church is working right. And often, sadly, the church is not working right, increasingly so because of poor leadership within the church. And that breaks my heart Because where should leaders be coming from? The church. Leaders are to be formed and developed and sent into the world from the church. The the church has been uniquely set apart and designed by God to develop and deploy leaders for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. And yet, sadly, it seems like more and more and more that the church, along with a lot of other people, are pulling ideas for leadership from anywhere but the Scriptures and from anywhere but the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate example of leadership. Listen to this quote from a book called uh, Designed to Lead, and I, I stole that title from my sermon title, Designed to Lead. But they say this, if we believe, as William Temple once said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members, then all of humanity, listen to this, all of humanity benefits from the leaders created and formed in the church. No organization carries such a holy mandate. Thus, the leaders developed in the church and by the church are leaders who are developed for the world. They are developed in the center and sent out to the world. The world is impacted and improved by the leaders the church develops and deploys. That's a powerful truth. And what I want to get across again and again and again this morning, if you miss anything else that is said, please don't miss this. I want you to know that all of us in here, by nature of the fact you're made in the image of God, you are created to lead. God has designed his people to lead. Just consider the the Great Commission to go out and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, right? So just by nature of the Great Commission, you are designed to lead others to know Christ. We're all designed to lead. And obviously, leadership will look different for everyone according to gifting and personality and and spheres of influence. Some, Some will lead themselves. We all need to be doing that, right? Uh, Some will lead companies. 
Some will lead churches, some will lead governments, some will lead growth groups, some will lead Sunday school classes, uh, some will, will lead their homes, uh, some will, will lead in just so, so many different ways, sports, classrooms, you name it. Leadership comes in all sorts of different sizes and shapes and spheres of influence. But again, we are all called to lead. What do I mean by leadership? In a word, I would mean influence. I mean intentionally, deliberately, proactively trying to move people from where they are to where God needs them to be, to where God has designed them to be. Or you could say that another way is leadership is motivating and encouraging and persuading people to go from where they are to where they need to be. And next week, we're going to come back to this next week. And just so you know, kind of pulled back the curtains a little bit, this was supposed to be a one-sermon shot. The more I studied it, it turned into two. I have no promises what will happen after this, uh, but there's at least two sermons. There's so much the Scriptures say about leadership, but this, this morning we're kind of laying the foundation for it. Next week we're going to unpack this definition of leadership more, but if you want a more full statement of what I think the Bible teaches about leadership, it's this, if you can write fast. A, a biblical leader is a person of character, conviction, competence, and care who influences others to be where God wants them to be. And again, we're going to unpack that next week and see how that applies to family, the church, uh, to workplaces. But very, very simply for this morning, leadership is moving people towards Christ. That's biblical leadership. Biblical leadership is moving people towards Christ. So husbands should lead their wives towards Christ, and wives should lead their husbands towards Christ, and husbands and wives together with their family should lead their children to trust Christ, and children can influence other children to be more like Christ, and teens and young adults can influence other teens and young adults to become more like Christ, right? You see, leadership is all over the place, and leadership is influencing people to trust and be more like Christ. Everyone leads, so like it or not, you are shaping people by your behavior, your words, your actions, by what you believe. And the question is, are you a good leader? The question is not, are you a leader? That's not a question up for grabs with Christianity. You are a leader. The question is, are you a good leader? Are you exercising leadership in whatever realm of life that God has given you to help people have a higher, deeper, more passionate love for the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment, I'm, I'm going to show you where I'm getting that from. Maybe you already see it from Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, but I just want to emphasize again that main point. You are created to lead. When God created you in his image, he created you to lead for his praise and for his glory that lays the foundation, everything being said this morning lays the foundation for next week when we're going to dig into, okay, what does that look like then? If I'm designed to lead, what does that look like in my home? What does it look like in my church? What does it look like in my workplace? And just think, if our homes, our communities, our companies, our churches, if they're going to secede, then men and women need to step up and into uh, this God-given privilege of leadership. So point number one this morning, the leadership mandate. 
the leadership mandate. The conviction is that leadership must be rooted in God's design. And, and looking at Genesis 1, 26 or 28, which, which Andy read this morning, we see that the Bible teaches that we have been created in his image. Uh, the old way of saying this from the Latin is that we are created in the imago Dei, right? And I've used that jokingly before that I, I swear that sounds like perfume or cologne, right? The imago Dei. Uh, it just sounds like this, this amazing sound for or name for if someone wanted to sell sell perfume call it the imago day but genesis 1 26 says then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and what does that mean right likeness is not difficult to understand at all uh, just think of when we look at pictures of children and how much they look like who their parents when they were at that age right? That's all that likeness means. It means resemblance. It means resemblance. It often, that word likeness often gets used in the Old Testament to describe idols, where people would fashion and create idols out of wood and stone and, and different metals, uh, and they would seek to fashion the idol so that it resembled uh, that God that they were worshiping. It was made to look like that God. And so if you connect that with our text, the scriptures are saying that God created us in his image, in his likeness, so that you and I, as his image bearers, might represent him on earth. How do we do that? How do we represent God's rule over creation? Then notice verse 28. Verse 28 says, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. When it says fill the earth and subdue it, that phrase subdue it, that means we are to order this world and shape this world and in a word, cultivate this world so that it will flourish, so that those within it will also flourish as they live according to their God-given purposes. And I think that's mind-boggling. Uh, that, that the Lord has created us in his image and has commanded us or blessed us that we might fill the earth and subdue it. Again, shape it, cultivate it, uh, develop its resources, making the earth to flourish. To say that another way, God has made us kings and queens, or you can say co-rulers or vice regents under his authority, but given his authority uh, to represent him and proclaim him uh, and to develop and cultivate this world. You could, you could use the word reflectors, right? We reflect his rule. We, re we are to reflect his reign. And we are to do that as those, again, in his likeness. This is our Father's world. We are to lead the Father's world in a way, in the same way that our Father does. We are to lead this world in a way that is consistent with the Father's characteristics, the Father's design, and the purpose of God himself. So this plays out in our homes. And this plays out in our schools. And this plays out in our churches and in our workplaces. Wherever we are, it is our immense privilege, our immense opportunity, and the grace, the blessing of the Father to reflect the Father's rule and his reign and his character and his purposes in whatever environment we're in so that that environment might flourish under his reign, under his rule. But it doesn't stop there. 
Notice again in, in verse 28, it says, He blessed us and said, said, said to Adam and Eve, our, our parents, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So be fruitful and multiply. We're not only to fill the earth and subdue it, cultivate it for God's glory so that it will flourish, we're also supposed to multiply. That's a, that's a blessing to say to Adam and Eve, to have babies, Right? Uh, and to have a family, raise some children. And by the way, those children are also in God's image. Raise them in a way that's consistent with your heavenly father. Raise them to know the heavenly father. Raise them to reflect the heavenly father and his rule and, who's, and his reign. And in doing so, they will fill the earth with his glory, and they too will cultivate and care for creation as it flourishes. So in other words, God, the ultimate leader, has made us leaders, and we are to go uh, reproduce more what? leaders. That's Genesis 1, 26 or 28, right? Did you catch that? God the Father, the ultimate leader, has made us leaders in his image to go cultivate, uh, develop, help this earth to flourish. And, and to do that, part of doing that is multiply, make more leaders who will go and do the same, who will then make more leaders who will go and do the same. That's God's design. You can summarize all of that in three words. Uh, the leadership mandate is for all of us as leaders to first reflect God's glory by embodying godly characteristics, his loves, his hates, his commands, his characteristics, his laws expressed through us. We're also to replicate by seeking to raise godly children who will reflect God's glory. Then we are to cultivate by creating an environment where others will flourish in the presence and the light of God's glory. Reflect replicate, cultivate. That's the leadership mandate given to us in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So I want to say it this way. If you are not leading, if you are not leading in some capacity according to your unique talents, your unique gifts, your, your unique opportunities, you are not living the life God created you to live. I think that's a fair application coming out of our text. I'm going to say it again. If you are not leading in some capacity according to your unique talents, abilities, opportunities, you are not living the life you were created to live. We were designed from the moment of creation to lead others in a way that helps them get from where they are to where God wants them to be so they can flourish in this world that we seek to cultivate under his rule, under his reign. That's not something we do. It's something you are. Leadership is not something you do, it is something you are. You were designed to lead. That leads to this point, this idea about leadership roles. Leadership roles. We're all designed to lead, but this is important to, to bring into the mix. Uh, that just because we're all designed to lead does not mean we never need to follow. Uh, and as, as we unpack scripture, we see uh, within these leadership, there's also the design of authority and submission. We're all leaders. We all lead. We all lead on differing levels, but we're also called, all of us, to varying levels of submission. Everyone's favorite word, right? Submission. I mean, 2021, right? That's, that's obviously everyone's favorite word, submission. Far from it, right? Far from it. We see this pattern of authority and submission all throughout creation. We see it all throughout uh, the scriptures. See, God created us, and we're to do what? Submit to him. 
We see it in the relationship of husbands and wives. The husband and wife uh, bring about God's lordship and dominion to the earth uh, as his image bearers by the man being the leader and the woman helping. We see this bared out in Genesis. Look at Genesis 2, verse 15. Genesis 2 kind of comes in close and, and zooms in on day 6 of what happened back in Genesis 1, which is very briefly mentioned, the sixth day of creation. Genesis 2 zooms in. Here's God's creation of Adam and Eve. And what we find in Genesis 2.15 is a crucial text in understanding the husband or Adam's role uh, within the family. And Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to do two things, right? To work it and to keep it. You need to know that word work is translated most places in the Old Testament as serve or minister. And so God put the the man, he put Adam in the garden to serve and, and to minister, to work the garden, but also to keep it, which means to guard and to protect. That's a key role of, of Adam, to guard and protect and hang on to that. So we're going to come back to that. But what I want you to see is how God's design for Adam uh, was for him to represent God's loving rule for those under his care. He was a lovingly lead by serving and guarding and protecting his family and the garden, the sphere of influence that the Father had placed him in. Bump down to verse 18, and we see uh, the Lord's design uh, for the wife, for the woman, for Eve. Not named Eve yet at this point, but we know she's Eve. Uh, Genesis 2.18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And I want you to know that, that that word helper is one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. That is a beautiful, beautiful word to express the role of the wife, the woman. In fact, you may or may not know this, that, that word for helper in, in Genesis 2.18 is often used to describe God. So Psalm chapter 33, verse 20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our helper. Same word found in Genesis 2.18. The Lord our God is our helper and our shield. See how that's a beautiful word? The beautiful role that God has given to the woman to, to, to be the helper takes on that same role that the Father, our God, takes. But the big idea I want to see coming out of that is Adam, or man, is incomplete, inadequate, uh, deficient without the woman. And notice it says in verse 18, a helper fit for him. So a good way to say that is the woman complements the man. Eve was not designed to be exactly like Adam. She is to be his mirror opposite. She possesses qualities that the man lacks but needs. If the man's going to to be the leader he's being called to be, then he needs the woman who has what he lacks. See, God's, God's made husband and wife not to compete but to complete one another. Adam gets this. This is why a few verses later in Genesis 2, towards the end, first time he sets his eyes on on Eve, he explodes into poetry. 
this poetic ecstasy, because uh, he understands she compliments him. She makes him whole. And if I can just pause there and, and make an application to the ladies, you know, as, as you think about your husband uh, or, or, or something like that, that when you see your husband's weaknesses and you see his shortcomings and you see his inconsistencies, I know the temptation is to want to kind of harp on those or complain about those or continually point those things out. And men, we have a lot of them, for being honest, right? Men, we have a lot of inconsistencies and inadequacies and areas where we fall short. We have a lot of weaknesses. I know you don't like to admit that. You think it's manly not to admit that, but that's not being manly. But again, I just want to point out to the ladies that your husband who have those inconsistencies and those inadequacies, that what the Lord wants you to recognize is that's exactly why God gave you to your husband, because he lacks those things, he has those inadequacies, so you're there to help and to strengthen and become that team that works together as you seek to rule and, and cultivate this earth. We see that same pattern of authority and submission throughout the scriptures in the church. You have faithful men who are set apart by the Holy Spirit who are called to lead and to serve and protect the church in which the, the Lord sets them up in and the church body insofar as that leadership is biblical is to submit to that leadership. But then the pastors and the congregation all submit to Christ. We see the same thing in the government. God established the government to lead, to serve, and to protect its citizens in a manner consistent with his character and those who are under his authority as far as their authority is consistent with uh, what scriptures would say. We are to submit to those authorities. God establishes employers and workplaces to lead employees in a way that should be faithful and consistent uh, with, his, with his character and his rules and his ways. And we are to submit to those in workplaces, those whom have authority over us. Are you, are you seeing this? this? This idea of, yes, we're all designed to lead, but it doesn't mean we're also not in various places called to, everyone's favorite word, submit. You see it in every relationship. Uh, you see it in marriage, you see it in the church, you see it in the workplace, you see it in the government. We're all in different situations where we will lead, but also we will follow. There's no escaping authority and submission. And I should say this, this is important to point out, in authority and submission, we're all what? Equal. Right? That's a key thing, and this is a total side note, I didn't plan on saying this this morning, but I think it's probably good to say, is we live in a world that defines equality based on, I can do the same things you can do. So in other words, we live in a day and age that defines equality based on doing. Well, biblically, equality is based on being. Equality is based on, though God has made you in his image. It's not dependent on what you do, it's what you are. You are equal by virtue of the fact you were made in his image. So that should help us in relationships of authority and submitting. We're not submitting because we're not equal. We're submitting to those who are equals, but we're following God's leadership mandate and design. And together we work together for his praise and his glory to cultivate this earth and help it to flourish. Amen? So all of that leads to a leadership problem. God has this design uh, we see it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, 
but it all goes terribly wrong. And you know that the picture that I just painted is not the picture that we are encountering today. We know about the, the global leadership crisis, but so this leadership problem, it all goes wrong. God made male and female in his image and his likeness. He gave them clear roles. Uh, he made them co-rulers over this earth. He gives them clear instructions not to eat from the one tree in the garden. Along comes this guy named Satan in the form of a serpent. He seeks to attack and undermine God's design uh, that he has established. So rather than approach the man, she, or the, the serpent approaches the woman and says to her, doing what he always does, questioning God's word, right? Did God really say? Did God really say? And by the time the devil is done, he's convinced the woman to eat the forbidden fruit. She is deceived, Scripture says. The question that's on our minds, though, is where is who? Where's Adam? Right? Genesis 2.15, he's supposed to be uh, guarding and protecting and serving the, uh, this rule, the sphere of influence that God has given to him. Where is he? he? He's supposed to be that loving leader, protecting and serving. And Genesis 3.6 tells us where Adam was. Genesis 3.6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. By the way, if you ever want to do a study on temptation and why it's so tempting, that is an amazing verse right there because it points out to you. First she sees what it is, right? She saw the tree was good. And then she desires it, right? It's a delight to the eyes and she desires it. See, delight, desire. That's often the way temptation works. That's a sidetrack. Uh, it says she desi it desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And it's so easy to miss this if we read it fast and don't think about it. It says she also gave some to her husband who was where? He was with her. That's failed leadership. Adam's leadership failed. Instead of leading Eve, he followed her. Instead of protecting her, he failed her. Instead of rebuking the serpent, he stood there or sat there silently. That's failed leadership. He did not use his God-given leadership over creation to help his wife Eve flourish. Worse, instead of taking responsibility for his failed leadership, what's he do? He blames Eve and he blames God. He says, the woman you gave to be with me, right? The, the father comes looking and says, what, what's going on? You know, where are you guys? And finally they come out and that's, that's Adam's response. He says, the woman you gave to be with me. He's laying blame on the father, right? You, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it doesn't stop there. God tells the woman as a result of sin, if you drop down to verse 16, he says to the woman of this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, as a result of sin entering the world, Eve's desire will be to control her husband rather than follow his leadership. And in sinful response, what will the husband do? What will Adam do? He shall rule over you. In other words, she's going to try and control him, and he's going to try and control her. 
This is sinful manhood and womanhood. It's the perversion of God's leadership design and mandate and roles. The leadership pattern of the husband lovingly leading and serving and protecting his wife and providing for her so that she can flourish spiritually has been upturned, has been twisted. And now from this point forward, authority and submission will be a source of conflict and battle. Instead of completing one another, they're going to fight and compete against one another. And it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. As those made in God's image, remember Adam and Eve were to multiply, fill the earth, multiply. And they, they do that, right? They have two sons, uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel. So Adam's poor leadership led to the next generation producing the greatest evil of all kind, murder. The fruit of rejecting God's design for leadership is Cain is now destroying the image of God instead of filling the earth with the glory and image of God. See how the Bible explains a lot of things that are happening in our world today? All of this bleeds over into life, school, parenting, work, sports, government. Consider uh, at your workplace, maybe you have an overbearing boss. Maybe you've, you've been to a church, I hope you wouldn't say that about this church, but you've been to a church where the leadership or the pastor is domineering and abusive. Maybe you've encountered or you've seen on TV about uh, excessively harsh law enforcement. We have crude and abusive politicians. Over and over and over, you, you could ex you know, just, just watch the news, right? Example after example after example of people in positions of leadership using their authority to oppress and use people for their benefit instead of lovingly protecting them and providing for them and serving them. As a result, many in our world, you know that survey, 86% say leadership global, global leadership crisis. Why do they see that? Genesis 3 is explaining it, right? Genesis 3 is, is explaining that this is why people are suspicious of leadership. This is why many will actually wholly reject any idea of authority and leadership. Where does it all come from? Sin. This is the leadership problem. When we fail to lead as God has designed, when we use positions of leadership to oppress and use those under our care, just follow Genesis 3. You see what happens. It leads to disaster. It leads to distrust. It leads to blaming other people. It leads to trying to control each other. It leads to murder and death. That's the leadership problem. That's the leadership crisis. And the scriptures paint it out painfully clearly. And I just want to point out something here, too, that failed leadership is not simply being aggressive and domineering and abusive. Failed leadership is also leadership that is passive. And Adam is the example. The failure of Adam's leadership was not that he was aggressive. Man, we wish he was, right? We wish he spoke up and rebuked the serpent, or we wish he guarded the garden so the serpent couldn't even find his way in. But instead, he's passive. 
He failed to cultivate the garden. He failed to keep evil out. He stood by while his wife was being seduced. He was passive. So bad leadership isn't merely aggressive and and abusive and domineering. Bad leadership is also passive. And whether it's passive or aggressive, it beckons and leads to disaster. I I came across this illustration this week, and I, I thought it was pretty good. They said leadership is a lot like nuclear energy. Nuclear energy is able to warm a whole city, or what? Or bring it to waste and death and destruction. It's all about how it gets used. And if I can, just just connect this to the church. The church is supposed to be developing and deploying leaders. If we as a church don't develop and deploy leaders according to God's design, we actually are helping propagate this destruction in the world. Right? If we're not developing and deploying leaders according to God's design, we are actually helping to propagate this destruction, this disaster that's going on all around us. Do you see the urgency and the priority of biblical leadership? So what are we supposed to do then? Are we just kind of left to endure it, hopefully survive it? How how do we reconcile mistrust of leadership to the fact that God has called us to lead? And that leads to the final thought here of of leadership redeemed. And praise God, the biblical storyline doesn't stop at Genesis 3, uh, verse 14, or or there, but it, it gives us the gospel hope in Genesis 3, 15, where the scriptures, God says to Adam and Eve, in particular to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's, or I'm sorry, speaking of the serpent here, I will put enmity between you, that's Satan, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's what's often called the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, the good news, the gospel help and hope that Jesus doesn't leave, or God doesn't leave us to ourselves. He has promised a son, he has promised a savior, who will conquer the serpent, who will not be aggressive in his leadership and who will not be passive in his leadership, but he will use his leadership to lovingly protect and care for and guide and also to crush the serpent, to crush sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament reveals that it's Jesus. He undoes this distorted leadership. He restores leadership to its rightful place of where it's meant to be, the leadership, again, that serves and protects. And we've talked about this, right? Luke who does he go to battle with in Luke 4? He goes to battle with Satan, and he defeats Satan. He crushes Satan. Uh, he, he shows that he is the obedient son, uh, that he is the gospel hope and help that has been promised. Of course, he ultimately crushed the serpent through his death and burial and resurrection, his death on the cross for our sin, bearing the penalty for our sin, not staying dead, but three days later, rising from the dead, and the Father showing he accepts him. Uh, Hebrews two fourteen and 15 says that Jesus became like us, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, who's that? It's the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus conquered Satan. Jesus conquered sin. He's conquered death through his own death and resurrection. Now he's enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father. His name is exalted above all names, and he is the ultimate leader. I just want to pause there and ask this question. Are you following him? 
Are you following his leadership? Following his leadership begins with recognizing your sin, that he's holy and you're not. Remember we talked about that last week? Peter falls down at his knees, depart from me, I'm sinful man. He understands the holiness of Christ, but then hear the words of Christ, do not be afraid. If you're here this morning and you're still lost in your sins, you're caught, you're trapped, you're deceived, you're blinded by sin, the first step to following Jesus Christ is to confess that sin to him, to turn from that sin, to trust in him, and to follow him, to be a disciple of his. That's the first step. If you haven't done that, I would ask, why not? If you haven't done that because you've had a bad experience with leadership, you've had maybe a bad experience at church, a bad experience with other Christians, I would just encourage you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ because contrary to the bad leadership that's seen in the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, his leadership is sacrificial, his leadership is sanctifying, his leadership is loving. Jesus' leadership is decisive and willing. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read this, that Jesus gave himself up for his bride. So you hear that? He's sacrificial. He gave himself up that he might sanctify her, which means to set her apart, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water with the word. His leadership is for the good and joy of those under his care. We read again in Ephesians 5 that Jesus sacrificed his life so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So we see then from Jesus how he restores leadership. Adam is passive. Adam isn't guarding. He's not protecting. Jesus steps in and lovingly leads through sacrificial, sanctifying, servant-like love. He is the ultimate leader. He redeemed leadership for his glory. And those who follow his leadership flourish because of his leadership that is sacrificial, sanctifying, and servant-like love. And as those who follow his leadership, we are to go forth and lead in our homes, in our workplaces, in the government, in our churches with that same sacrificial, sanctifying, servant-like love. Jesus redeems leadership in that way. And, and, and next week we're going to unpack exactly what that looks like and how that plays out in, in each of those roles. There's, there's much there that I'm excited to, to think about and talk about. But just, just to kind of tie things together... We've talked about this morning and shared this morning that the, by nature the fact that you have been made in God's image, you are a leader. You've been made in God's image. You were made to glorify him by leading others. And that, that sphere of influence, that realm of leadership that you have, whether it's personal or marriage or family or your company or your church, whatever it is, you're there to reflect his glory, to replicate his purposes, and to cultivate an environment where those around you can flourish. Man, that's exciting to me to think about it's, as, as, as a pastor. How, how can I reflect his glory? and replicate his purposes and cultivate a church where we can spiritually flourish and where all who come under will also spiritually flourish. And how can we as a church impact the community around us, right? How can we reflect and replicate and cultivate uh, this, this 
surrounding community with this love and this purpose and this grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it to you this way. It's easy for me to stand up here and say there's a global leadership crisis and things in the world are bad. In fact, this morning I was reading Psalms 12, and man, that struck me how, how that parallels today. If you get a chance today, maybe, maybe look at Psalms 12. Uh, but, but this thought hit me uh, as I was thinking through this that we, it's, it's easy to stand up here and say the world's bad, all this stuff is happening, you know, blah, 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 kind of. But have you ever considered this? Have you ever considered this, that the catalyst for that change is you. Right? You're made in God's image. He's put you in the sphere of influence that you have so that you can cultivate the earth and so that wherever your sphere of influence is, it will flourish. Have you considered that the catalyst for change is you? In whatever realm of leadership, authority, submission that the Father has placed you in. You were created to lead for the glory of God. Are you taking that seriously? Are you taking that seriously? Let me ask it this way. If the substance of your life were placed in a, in a big pile and someone took a lighter and lit it on fire, how much of it survives? How much of it survives? How much of it burns up as stuff that really didn't matter? What would be left, right? If, if the whole substance of your life is, is lit on fire, what's left? What's left? I just want to challenge you this week, today, this week, spend some time praying, spend some time asking God through the Spirit to show you His desire for your life. Ask, how can I be the leader that He is calling me to be? How can I be the leader in my marriage and my family and my workplace at my church? How can I lead to the glory of God? How can I show this world the loving leadership of Jesus, right? How can I lead in such a way in my sphere of influence that others see Jesus come to him and flourish? Added to that, ask yourself, spend some time honestly evaluating your life and determining what needs to be added or taken away from your life, right? That, that analogy, if we lit your life, all the substance of your life on fire, what would be left? What, what as you meditate on, think about that, what are things in your life you need to add? What are things in your life you need to, to take out? Things that God is laying on your hearts. You know, you're a leader in some kind of sphere of influence. And, and, and think about, remember, what happens when you lead badly, right? It's disaster, it's control, it's blaming, it's distrust. Who in your life is hurting because of your bad leadership? That's an ouch, huh? How do you need to change as a leader? What's at stake in your realm, your spheres of influence, if you don't lead the way you're supposed to lead? Who will it impact negatively if you don't lead the way the Lord is calling you to lead? That's something to think about, isn't it?